This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast covering all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I'm here today with Ding Liang, who is an expert on engineering, procurement, and construction sector here at IHS Market. Ding, how are you? Hello, good evening, Hill. Welcome. Yeah, it's it's my evening here in Houston, and, and we're talking here in Singapore on yeah. Wednesday morning, and I'm talking to you here Tuesday night in Houston. Yep, yep, it's morning in Singapore. Yeah, and, and yeah. You're, you're dealing with a much uh, warmer bout of weather where you are than I am. Yeah, much, much, much warmer. It's like 30 degrees Celsius in Singapore these few weeks. Not normal, though. <laughs> Not normal, Not but, but normal hot and humid. Though, yeah. Well, we, we would have been envious uh, a couple weeks ago because it was, or a couple days ago, I guess, here in Houston, we we had what a friend was saying today, a friend from Canada was saying that it wasn't cold at all. But for us, it sure seemed cold. So it would have been a little bit more comfortable in that uh, 80, 90 degree Fahrenheit temperature that you're dealing with. Well, so so today we, we wanted to, you and uh, some of the colleagues that you were working with published recently a report looking at the EPC or the engineering procurement construction market um, and some of the outlook for the sector as we, in a sense, navigate the energy transition. But before we get into some of the current state and uh, outlook for the future, I was hoping you could give us a, you know, kind of set the stage for where we are, what we're recording this here in February uh, of 2022 in the EPC sector. It's really come off, from what I can tell, a, a slow or a downturn really begun in 2019 that, that I think was synchronized with the uh, the COVID pandemic and, and whatever else. Um, seems to be somewhat in recovery mode. Is that fair? Can, can you help kind of orient us on, on how we should view, view the sector today? Yeah, sure. Uh, let me just give some context to the market. So when we talk about the EPC market, engineering, procurement, and uh, construction, we are primarily referring to the onshore and offshore EPC market. So for the onshore market, it includes things like the construction of refineries, petrochemical plants, LNG plants, any kind of uh, onshore base kind of facility. And mm -hmm. uh, for offshore EPC, we are referring to uh, things like your offshore platforms, rig building, offshore wind kind of uh, market. So uh yes you're right we are we are we are actually uh I would say at least half a year into a recovery but the covid-19 that happened and you know eventually got flu uh, full blown in early 2020 actually disrupted the recovery that we expected earlier on so you know when we look at how the EPC market starts to recover right sometime in late 2018 we already saw some of the onshore EPC sectors, uh, like the big LNG projects started to recover. So that's mm -hmm. when we see a lot of uh, big projects, uh, onshore projects being sanctioned. But uh, the offshore project-wise is still in a, kind of a limbo in, 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 in 2018. So it's only in 2019 that we begin to see some uh, sparks of recovery for the offshore EPC market. But uh, in early 2020, you know, here comes COVID-19. COVID and uh, everything starts going downhill. So for 2020, we didn't see any kind of a uh, big 
major awards by any of the IOCs. But the NOCs okay. are still very active in the market. Kind of dynamics when 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 it comes to sanctioning of project is quite different between the NOCs and any any IOCs. So for the last two years, it's actually the NOCs that are taking the lead when it comes to uh, uh, some of the offshore project. But uh, since the second half of 2021, we begin to see big projects being sanctioned across the world, starting with uh, some of the big FPSO project by Petrobras in Brazil, then mm -hmm. followed by the Guyana FPSOs by uh, Exxon in Guyana. And uh, more recently, we saw big semi-submersible production platforms in uh, Australia being sanctioned. So, and so uh, that's coming from more than the, you mentioned the NOCs, the national oil companies were keeping yes, things correct. afloat uh, yeah. in 2019, 20. Now you're seeing broader participation from the investor-owned. Yep, from the major IOCs and also the independent producers. More and more of those okay. projects are coming back and uh, we're expecting actually a very strong 2022. Okay, and, and yeah. uh, I guess thinking back, you mentioned 2019 that, that there was some optimism and, and some growth around the onshore segment. And, and was that all LNG driven, or was there work you, you, on the refining and, and and some of that complex as well? Uh, the vast majority of those sanctions are all LNG projects. They are typically much much larger in terms of uh, uh, contract values. Okay. Yeah. Larger in contract value and on margin. To, to the EPC? Or... Um, <laughs> margin is something that, you know, is, is, is very hard to determine because, because uh, <laughs> the size of the contract basically only determines revenue and uh, there's a big cost component to the EPCs that need to take into consideration when uh, we talk about margins. Okay, but, but yeah. we can be confident or we can be comfortable saying that the size of the LNG project w w was large and that much larger than the... Oh uh, yeah, definitely. definitely. Those, those are in the tens of billions of dollars. And then the offshore segment, I guess, 2019, it's still offshore oil and gas at that point, or had wind really made a play? Uh, well, in 2019, right, when we look at the offshore, e uh, the, the traditional offshore EPC sector, it's mostly still the uh, oil and gas projects, but uh, we are already seeing quite some offshore wind project by then. We were seeing offshore wind by then. Yep, yep. But not many. I mean, even when we look at the uh, backlog and revenue mix of most of the offshore EPC contractor today, the bulk, mm -hmm. the the vast majority of them are still quite dominated by uh, offshore oil and gas, but uh, we are definitely seeing an increasing contribution from offshore wind and 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 other renewable sources towards the revenue and uh, backlog of the offshore EPC contractors since uh, 2020. Okay. Yeah. And you you say in 21 you start to see growth stabilizing a little bit and coming back. Um, yes. uh, across IOCs, across NOCs, um, you, you mentioned Brazil. How, how geographically distributed um, is the work right now? And is it a mix of onshore and offshore? Yeah, so most of the onshore projects are, uh, are actually awarded before COVID-19. Those are big okay. projects. Execution period would be like, uh, you know, five years. So if under today, those uh, projects are being executed on. In terms of new order-wise, for the last six months to a year, most of the new orders are actually offshore project. And uh, in terms of geography-wise, it started in uh, some of the smaller projects started in Europe, followed by the bigger project in South America. And mm -hmm. uh, more recently, we are seeing uh, big projects being awarded in Asia Pacific, especially Australia. Is that traditional oil? Uh, traditional oil uh, and yes, gas? That's, or that's, a... that's traditional oil and gas. Yeah, when, 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 when we talk about offshore wind-wise, right? I would say that only the European market is more international in nature when it comes to uh, its supply chain. That means they contract more beyond their home market. For the rest of the world, which is dominated primarily by East Asia, 
so for example, in China, most of their mm. offshore wind structures, they are all built within China. So it doesn't really impact on the international supply chain. Okay. And so what, when you look at the sector today or when you look at the market today, is it the same market two years later or, or was there a fundamental change within EPC post-COVID-19? When you look at the uh, offshore, the, the oil and gas uh, EPC market, uh, it will still be more or less the traditional market. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, all this really depends on uh, 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 the dynamics in the oil market, oil and gas market. You see, to determine whether these projects will be sanctioned or not. But uh, where the oil and gas are, you know, is basically the same location. Uh, it's just when they will get sanctioned. Uh, for offshore wind, right, it's a bit different because a lot of the offshore wind market is driven by policy. Right. So we already seen uh, the offshore wind market in uh, East Asia, especially China, picking up very, very significantly in the last uh, few years as a result of uh, government policies. The uh, European market will still remain quite robust uh, as it had been for, uh, in the past. Uh, the new market that we are seeing for offshore wind will be uh, North America, especially the United States, and okay. uh, also in uh, some a- uh, East Asian countries like uh, South Korea, Japan, and uh, maybe to a lesser extent, uh, probably even Australia in the uh, uh, medium term. And how is competition changing as the, the the face of projects changes are these new players coming in or, or new competencies on the existing firms hmm. i would say that you know most of the traditional oil and gas epc companies they are definitely very very interested in the uh, renewables green energy market uh, a lot of these companies have actually mandated that you know certain portion of their revenue should be from uh, renewable sources. I mean, mm-hmm. renewable projects in a certain point in time in in the future. So you know, uh, at the current state, right? Uh, how are they attempting to evolve in you know with, with with this energy transition? We are seeing three key areas. Firstly, right, is actually uh, making market entry into the green energy energy transition market, either mm-hmm. through M and A's partnerships or uh, internal new product development. Secondly, right, is to help the client reduce their carbon footprint. And thirdly, is to reduce the contractor's own internal carbon footprint. As of now, right, all three uh, strategies are occurring at the same time. But uh, I would say that, you know, uh, as a start, right, making a market entry into the market is definitely the easiest thing to do, because okay. uh, especially with uh, m and because you can just acquire a company. But of course, by acquiring or merging with, with a company doesn't necessarily guarantee success in the green energy or energy transition market. So in general, right, what we think is that, you know, whether an existing traditional oil and gas EPC company will, will, will succeed in the green energy market will actually depends on uh, two general factors. Firstly, will be the transferability of uh, existing resources and knowledge. How applicable are they in the green energy market that uh, the contractor is targeting? Because, you know, for, for example, let's say an offshore shipyard who is uh, interested in entering the green energy market, they would probably be more successful if they target market that their existing resources and knowledge can give them an advantage in. So that would be the construction of uh, uh, all these offshore wind facilities, for example. Right. And uh, secondly, right, will be how competitive are they actually against existing uh, new contractors in, in, in this green energy market? So uh, using that offshore shipyard example that I used just now, 
So, you know, when we look at the offshore wind market, they require different facilities, just like the uh, oil and gas market. Simple things like your monopiles to very complex things like your uh, floaters for your wind turbines or, or the substation. So when we, when we look at the offshore wind market, right, uh, we think that the offshore EPC contractors will be more successful in the jacket or the uh, floaters market as compared to the monopile market because they are skilled, they are knowledge-wise, they have an edge in those markets as compared to the uh, more traditional offshore wind contractors that have been focusing on uh, mostly monopiles. Okay, and they yep. know the target customer, right? Because you're working uh, with yes. a lot of the same correct. firms. Correct, correct. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point that you have uh, brought up. So, you know, when we look at a lot of the uh, traditional oil and gas contract, uh, EPC contractors that are entering into the green energy market, they are partnering and targeting a lot of the uh, oil and gas companies that are also wanting right. to go into that market. Yeah. Yeah. So knowing your client well will give you an edge in securing market share with them. Sure. And then, so, and then you say that some of the core competency does is leverageable, that, that even if I've been working in EPC focus on oil and gas for 10 years or 100 years, that it, it, working on the wind side of things, that, that there is core competency and skill that I can efficiently apply to an offshore wind project. Yes, definitely. And uh, I mean, I would say that in, in, in certain areas, right, actually the uh, traditional oil and gas EPC companies have an edge over the traditional wind contractors. Because when, when we look at the offshore wind market, it's moving more and more offshore. So uh, in deeper waters, right, the risk mm -hmm. is higher. So correspondingly, the competency required to execute those projects are also higher as well. And when we look at the traditional wind contractors, they are not very uh, accustomed to this kind of uh, more challenging environment because uh, in the past, most of the offshore wind projects, they are in very shallow waters. Okay. Yeah, but when we talk about deep water for oil and gas, it's like 2,000 meters, the kind of that. Mm -hmm. So asking them to develop a deep water wind farm, which is probably like in 100 meters of water, it is not really an issue. But uh, for a lot of the uh, offshore, uh, a lot of the traditional wind contractors, it could be quite challenging because they are not accustomed to kind of that kind of risk in a deeper water environment. And in, in terms of capacity, I mean, is the work for wind coming at a high enough volume to make up the lost work of oil and gas? Um, or is oil and gas coming back mm. at a fast enough clip that mm. you've got bandwidth problems because you're competing for too many jobs without enough resources? Okay, so uh, I will answer the first part of your question first, uh, you know, regarding whether will offshore wind projects be sufficient to make up for the uh, temporary lack of uh, oil and gas projects. I would say, you know, in, in, when we look at the market as a whole, right, not really, okay, especially in terms of uh, revenue, because uh, offshore wind projects typically smaller in terms of the uh, overall contract value. Uh, because they are okay. typically made up of uh, uh, simpler structures to construct as compared to the uh, traditional offshore EPC that we are seeing from, from, from the oil and gas market. Uh, in terms of uh, workload-wise, right, it really depends on, 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 on uh, which contractor we are talking about. Uh, firstly, right, when we look at the uh, offshore wind project, you know, although I say that they are typically less complex technically to uh, okay. design and construct, but uh, in terms of the weight, the scale of the project, they are very, very big. So, you know, for the larger wind farm, they can, you know, have things like a hundred jacket, each jacket weighing like, uh, you know, 2000 tons, that would be like 200,000 tons of steel to fabricate. 
you know, okay. that is equivalent to something like a, you know, almost the size of a prelude FLNG vessel. Okay. So, 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 so that is very, very big in terms of the volume of work. But when we look at where all these uh, offshore wind projects awards are going to, it is typically certain yards that are getting these contracts at the moment. So most of these yards are actually located in the Middle East and, 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 and in uh, Southeast Asia and in China. So these yards will be the ones that will be quite filled up when it comes to uh, their backlog and uh, utilization. Uh, is that be sorry, is that because those yards are proximity to the or close to the actual project de designated project or is it because the yard is close to the labor and the equipment? Two things. One is cost. Secondly, is uh, whether they have the capability and capacity to undertake that kind of work. So most of the uh, work that have been subcontracted to, uh, I mean, contracted to these yards in uh, Middle East and Southeast Asia are mostly, firstly, uh, jackets. Okay, because, uh, you know, in the past, the European developers tried to do all these uh, huge number of offshore wind jackets in Europe. But the yards over there doesn't have the scale to cater to that kind of uh, fabrication requirement. Only yards in the Middle East and Asia currently has a kind of capacity. That's why okay. uh, they get those projects. And of course, when we look at it from the uh, contract price perspective, in Asia and in the uh, Middle East, it's definitely cheaper. Sure. Yeah. And the next kind of uh, structure that we see being fabricated for offshore wind in uh, the Middle East and, 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 and in uh, Southeast Asia are the huge HVDC substation, quite a number of them. So, so, so all these, all these, uh, you know, in, in, in the oil and gas case, right, they are like your CPP, central processing platform. So okay. they, are, they are very big platform, top sites. Each mm -hmm. one for the offshore wind case could weigh something like uh, between 8,000 tons to something like 15,000 tons. Quite a number of them are being built in uh, uh, Europe. Okay, because because these are these are these these are definitely much more complex things to build as compared to jacket. But mm -hmm. uh, you know, when, when we look at it from a cost and capacity perspective, a lot of this project actually flow to Asia Pacific and the Middle East. Okay. Yeah. So uh, to your next question, whether will it affect the capacity for oil and gas projects? We would say in general, okay, when, when we look at uh capacity wise or uh, in terms of tonnage wise, not really. Uh, when we view, view it as a market as a whole, but uh, when we look at specific yards, especially those that I mentioned just now in uh, the Middle East and in Southeast Asia, uh, these yards could potentially be very, very filled up with uh, all these projects. Because, you know, this jacket typically needs to be uh, delivered within one year or so or, or two years. So even if a yard is being awarded like 30 sets of jacket, you know, that, that will be quite an enormous amount of work for them to do within within, within uh, one year or one and a half years. But you know, when we look at capacity, right, we definitely will need to look beyond tonnage numbers because tonnage is the uh, physical limitation. That's also okay. the aspect of the willingness and the ability of uh, uh, the traditional oil and gas contractors to take on more oil and gas work. Uh, you know, I mean, be before I begin, right, I, I, I would like to stress that, you know, uh, we believe that no traditional oil and gas contractor will say no to oil and gas projects. So, okay. so, 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 so as long as uh, there's, there's an oil and gas project that comes along, it's profitable in their view, they will take it up. So, so the is it more fact, preferable than uh, if, if I came to you with a wind project and an oil gas project, similar size, similar mm -hmm. revenue, which would you take? 
uh, purely from the profitable uh, profitability from the profit. perspective. Okay. Uh, 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 again, you know, I I I I I must stress that I'm just uh speaking in very very broad terms. Sure. sure. Okay. So you know, when we look at our oil and gas projects, okay, a lot of the oil and gas project, uh, the bigger it is, the I mean, so far, uh, when we look at the financials of of of, of the offshore EPC contractor wise, uh, the bigger the project, the more propensity for them to make losses on those big oil and gas projects. Okay. Okay. There are a few reasons behind a lot of these uh, big offshore oil and gas EPC projects are making losses. Okay. So we 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 exclude all those uh, uh COVID and um, raw mm-hmm. material price related kind of uh, factors. So we need to drill down to two very fundamental factors that that is driving uh, all these uh, losses for the big oil and gas EPC project. Firstly, right, is the contracting and bidding strategy of the contractor. Uh, okay. We have been seeing very, very aggressive and uh, competitive bidding by, by, by a lot of contractors. And uh, secondly, right, is the complexity of the project. So the more complex the project, if you don't factor in enough contingency, you don't uh, estimate your, I mean, if you underestimate your cost, the propensity for, for, for making losses on these more complex projects are actually quite high. You see, but 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 for offshore wind project, right? When we look at it specifically from the EPC perspective, they are simpler to build. So you know, when we view it from the complexity perspective, and 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 and, and also assuming that the uh, uh, offshore EPC contractors they are expecting the same kind of uh, margins from these uh, offshore wind project, the propensity for cost overrun is actually much lower. But uh, again, I'm, I'm I'm just speaking in very general terms for sure. the EPC yeah. market. But one, 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 one thing that I need to stress right, is that you know when, when we look at the offshore wind market, uh, a lot of the EPC contracts are actually award, uh, especially for the jacket, they are, they, are, they are being awarded on an EPCI basis. So EPC means engineering procurement construction, the I means installation. Okay. okay so so when, when we look at it, you know again excluding all the uh, COVID related factors, it is the I, the marine risk that is causing a lot of problem for, for the offshore wind market that, that, that uh, we believe hasn't been uh, uh, sufficiently being, being taken care of in the contracting process. Because of delays or what, what, what's uh, the, the installation? What's the problem? I would say the, 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 the allocation of risk. Can you expand on that? Yeah, the, 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 the allocation of risk. So, so for example, weather risk, if uh, okay. you know, there's, there's, there's certain delay in the process, or you know, due due to a, a weather related factor in uh, our kind of uh, oil and gas setting, right? They would there will typically be mitigation factors uh, in allocating that kind of risk. But uh, in the uh, offshore wind kind of uh, setting, right? According to contracts that, that that I mean, according to sources that we know, right? Uh, those marine risks hasn't been uh, taken care uh, uh, hasn't been taken care of, and uh, mitigation factors hasn't been. Uh, uh, being explored as 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 comprehensively as uh, they would have been in the uh, oil and gas case. And why uh, why why would those risks be new or unique to win relative to an oil and gas project? If, if I'm doing a project offshore, I'm, I'm exposing myself to a lot of the same mm. types of you know uh, weather or water or mm. you know just logistical challenges. Hmm. What, what is it just that wind is new and it's not as well understood a, as a segment? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm a traditional offshore EPC guy. 
So my, my belief, right, my personal belief is always uh, each individual contract is unique. So we need to look at each individual contract from the contracting perspective, from the uh, execution perspective on its own. Each project should have its own unique uh, strategy. And so how about I mean, some of the other things that, that uh, we were talking about but before, I guess we, we, we hit record, what was on, you know, some of the learnings from uh, the, the onshore LNG and the cost overruns associated mm -hmm. with those projects that, that proved to be a real thorn in the side of uh, EEPCs. How should we look at that um, as the EPCs start to compete for these lower carbon opportunities when whatever else? Do, do we expect similar cost overruns or, or is the lack of complexity that you describe relative to oil and gas and perhaps relative to liquefaction as well make that less of a concern? Uh, I mean, like I mentioned just now, you know, when we look at, you know, whether a project can be profitable or not, uh, we not only need to look at the revenue side of things, we also need to look at the cost side of things. Sure. The cost side of things, right, I mean, there, there, there are factors that the contractor can control. There are factors that they can't control, but, but can mitigate. So whether will the cost overrun be carried over to the renewables, green energy sector, you know, it really depends on how the contractor manage their costs and, 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 and price their, their contracts. But, uh, you know, lo looking back at the experience of the uh, EPC oil and gas sector, uh, again, we, we, we can generalize a few uh, uh, key drivers for, for the cost overrun. Okay, so, uh, I mean, when we look at projects in the last two, three years, of course, COVID-related factor, manpower-related factors, all those, mm -hmm. all those are, are, are really big driver for cost overrun, just like, you know, all those uh, sure. shipyards in Singapore as a result of uh, COVID-driven manpower shortages. Some of their costs have went up in, in the double digit. So there have been a challenge to, to, to a lot of contractors around the world. Uh, secondly, right, would be uh, raw material costs. So uh, things like steel, Steel, uh, steel prices increased somewhere between the range of 20-30% in, in, in uh, uh, just last year. Okay, I mean, there are mitigation measures that contractors can put in place to, to protect them for, uh, you know, uh, against price fluctuation. One is to yeah. index their costs in, 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 in the contract, you know, with the buyer, or they can have some kind of a frame, a frame agreement against index uh, uh, with their supplier. So that can mitigate some of the uh, fluctuation in, in, in raw material prices. But, uh, can they, they pass they, through they, most of that to the buyer? Again, it all this depends will depend on the contract. On, all this will, 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 will depends on your contract, how, how, how your contract is being drafted out. But uh, I would say that for uh, most of the EPC contract, okay, onshore, there's, there's, there's a mix of reimbursable and uh, lump sum. For offshore-wise, most of it is lump sum. So uh, in a pure kind of a pure lump sum kind of context, uh, most of these increases will be taken up by the uh, EPC contractor. Okay, so but, lump uh, in, sum, which means you eat it yeah. if you if you estimate it wrong. Correct, but in reality, there's 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 always room for negotiation. You see, <laughs> so, <laughs> so so it really depends on how the contractor and 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 the buyer wants to play the game. Uh, yeah, going back to the reasons, there are uh more opaque kind of reasons, you know, driving, driving a uh, cost overrun. 
some I've mentioned just now, things like things like uh, uh, aggressive bidding, com very competitive pricing of of mm -hmm. of their uh, projects just to secure projects. So uh, I mean, the way we see things, right, is that you know uh, when we look at a lot of the uh, EPC contractors, they are they are certainly becoming more and more uh, aware of the situation. They are becoming more and more uh, uh, I would say uh, conservative when it comes to uh, pricing their project. So that 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 is the first step towards you know avoiding cost overrun and, and and making losses on 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 your project is to price your project properly and uh which i guess next, right? when you're fighting i mean uh, in a down market and you're fighting for a low volume of potential work you're having to underbid a lot of the contracts so if if, if more work presents itself if things return mm. you, then you're not fighting as hard of a price to win the job uh I would say that that is a situation that we are expecting in the next five years, okay, because okay. of the uh, recovery of the oil and gas market, because of a new project generated by all these uh, green energy opportunities. The context is right. The situation is right for uh, the contractor to make all these kind of adjustment. But whether would they make this kind of adjustment or not is a big question mark. A lot depends on their own uh, competitive strategy. Because one, 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 one thing we need to understand, right, is that how the EPC industry has come to the state that it is today in terms of uh, their profitability when it, when it comes to the, uh, uh, the more opaque factor that, that is not market related. It mm -hmm. all started in 2010. And we need to understand between 2010 all the way to about 2014, it is a bull market for, for the EPC industry, especially sure. the offshore EPC industry. Yet, all these projects resulted in losses. So it doesn't mean, you know, naturally that with demand returning, you will see them making uh, profits. But what can be sure is that prices will increase. So to the <laughs> buyer, you can expect inflation when demand returns. Whether the contractor make losses or not, it, it depends on how they control. The price is going market. up whether they make money or not. Yeah, correct. Correct. Yeah, because that's, that's, that's the situation we have seen in the last upturn. Prices are somewhat going up. Utilization is at almost 100% for, for, for some of the EPC contractor. Yet they are making losses on their EPC contracts. Interesting. Yeah. And that's across all geographies? Yes, I would say so. Yeah, okay. but, 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 but I mean, yeah, it's across different geographies. But uh, I need to have a disclaimer there. Okay, there are certain contracts that have a higher potential of making good margins. Sure, Those yeah. are typically uh, uh, contractors that are either working on uh, usually simpler projects so that the propensity for losses is, 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 is lower and also contractors uh, working with the protection, with the umbrella of uh, local content. Right, okay. So, so yeah. a lot's going to depend on the specifics of the contract in, in any yes. of these examples. So it's, yeah. yeah. One of the things you mentioned uh, a second ago was the, the labor constraints. Um, yes. with COVID-19. On the back of that, have you seen increased investment in automation to reduce the need for labor in the, well, in the future? Uh, yes, we are seeing more automation when it comes to the uh, EPC side of the supply chain. That's especially the case when the production is done in a controlled environment. So let's say in the uh, shipyards, uh, okay. they, are, they, are, they, are, they are getting more and more things automated. But uh, the extent that they can get things automated, 
uh, will again depends on the kind of uh, setting they are in, the kind of business they are in. So for example, if you are building a new structure altogether, building a new ship, the chances for automation is much, much higher than in the case when you are modifying a ship. Okay. Yeah, those, 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 you know, because of the uh, way that things are done, because of the scope of work, uh, in, 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 in the modification setting, the, uh, the chances of automation uh, is lower than, 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 than that of a new building kind of setting where things are more standardized. And what's the split in work today in terms of new build versus maintenance? Um, is, is it 50-50 or is, is most of the work on that new that would allow for automation? Uh, okay, so uh, that would depends on, on, on what kind of uh, market you are talking about. Yeah, okay. so 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 if you're talking about you know very simple structure like uh, uh, the construction of uh, monopiles, that's highly automated. A lot of the welding, cutting, and stuff, bending and stuff, they are all done you know using machines, automated machines. Not only you know not not only you know machine man by man, but 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 the process is actually quite highly automated in terms that you know okay. they are, they are, they are using a lot of softwares to to run the whole process. If you're talking about uh, things like a uh, semi-submersible platforms mm -hmm. okay those structures are almost 100 uh, percent new build okay okay modification wise not much in in, in the oil and gas setting but we are seeing a lot of uh existing semi-submersible platforms especially those rigs being uh converted into very interesting uses some of okay. them are, are, are being converted modified into things like uh uh rocket launch platforms oh my gosh uh, not in the military sense, but going up to space. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So so when 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 it comes to the uh, FPSO market, so those those are the platforms that looks like a ship. Okay. Uh -huh. uh, 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 in the past, right? That 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 is a very interesting segment of of of, of the market, because uh, that is really the segment that has changed very significantly. Because in the past, uh, I would say 60, 70 percent of these FPSOs, they are typically conversions, modification projects. So, so, so they take an old tanker and they change it into a production platform. Okay. But uh, because of standardization offered by the uh, a lot of the leasing company and also the uh, entry of the Chinese yards into the market that make new building cost effective. Mm -hmm. A lot of these FPSOs are actually going into uh, a new building. So in fact, for the last few years, right, we have seen more new building projects compared to conversion projects. Uh, in the future, it would probably stay at half-half, but, okay. but, but, but that is already a significant change from the 70-30 in the past to half-half in the future. Which should then in turn allow for more automation and more manageable costs. Uh, it depends because, you know, uh, I mean, automation is definitely a way to mitigate any kind of uh, manpower risk. But right. again, automation by itself doesn't really, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be more competitive. You will be more, uh, uh, you, you, you'll be profitable as a result of uh, adopting op uh, automation. Because a lot will depend on your cost structure. In uh, some countries, it would actually be more competitive from a cost perspective to use more labor as compared to automation. In spite of the risks with COVID and yes. whatever else, at least in the yes. term. Correct. Yeah. But I, 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 I again, <laughs> I always have this famous, <laughs> <laughs> that, that is for the near term. Okay. Right. At least in, in the next five years, we may see some of these uh, 
competitive advantage derived from low-cost labor sticking to some of these locations. But in the long term, these cost advantages would bound to be eroded. Sure. Yeah, so that's when they need to, you know, see what other strategy. Is it automation? Is it some other strategy that potentially may help them to maintain their advantage? So I would say that automation is one of the strategy, but it may not necessarily means that it's your best strategy. Okay. Yep. So it, 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 like so many other things we've discussed tonight, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> well, so maybe just to, to look forward and, and kind of uh, wrap up on this, I mean, okay. you introduced the idea of you of rockets, and obviously we're, we're talking about uh, when from companies used to be, you know, working with oil and gas. It's February 22 right now. What, what, what do you see of the big you know potential surprises or things for us to be watching out for this year and then looking out five ten years how do you how do you expect the epc market to look different than it looks right now i think that that, that, that are, there are a few things that uh both buyers and uh, contractors will need to look out for okay so uh for the buyers right okay uh, i mean i would say it's a surprise okay but uh there can be a lot of upside to that a uh, downside to that surprise Okay, so uh, for the buyers, right, it is definitely, definitely inflation and capacity. I think mm -hmm. most buyers are are, are already uh, expecting that. Okay, but but one thing is that when we look back into history, there's always a chance, actually a very high chance, to underestimate how much inflation can be and uh, how tight capacity can be. So okay. uh, in that respect, right, uh, I would always uh, advocate uh, to buyers, you know, they need to pay a lot of attention to their involvement in their own project to make sure that, you know, they are in their project together with their contractor. Okay, mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, you are developing a wind farm or you are developing an oil and gas project, you know, your first electricity or your first oil, you know, that's when your revenue comes in. Right. And how fast that revenue comes in depends on how successful the contractor is in delivering your project. Yeah. Right. So be involved in, 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 in your project. For the EPC contractors, right? Okay. I will say that, you know, be more realistic. Okay. Uh, in pricing your contracts. Again, the element of surprise when it comes to cost is very high. <laughs> so, so, so in the environment where we expect uh, cost to increase, you know, in, 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 in the environment that we expect uh, lump sum EPC, to still be the uh, dominant kind of uh, contract in the offshore setting. Although the mm -hmm. onshore setting, we are seeing quite a number of uh, reimbursable kind of contract. Okay. Uh, but in the lump sum kind of contact, you know, any kind of uh, bad surprises, huge bad surprises in terms of uh, cost will really undermine margins very, very significantly. So be realistic, be conservative, be uh, uh try to estimate your risk you know uh more conservatively rather than underestimating them but uh, right. of course you know you and me here we are just talking about it <laughs> those, those, <laughs> those 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 guys at the uh epc companies they need to rack in the revenue so, right, yeah. so, so, so things may not always be so straightforward for them talk is cheap yeah <laughs> And so how about longer term? I mean, if, if we're looking at, if you and I are, are talking here in five years or 10 years, are we going to be talking 
as much about rockets as we are about wind, as we are about oil and gas? So are we oh. going to be having similar conversation with the same type of market share splits? Well, okay. In my course of work, right, I would say anything more than five or seven years is really anybody guess. So mm -hmm. I would throw in my guess. <laughs> okay. So, you know, when we look at the future of the EPC contract, uh, uh, EPC contractors market, okay, uh, I would think that, you know, uh, if you are talking about five, uh, 10 years or so, uh, the, 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 the only certainty, right, I, uh, I can say, right, is that, uh, you know, in terms of the split between the uh, traditional oil and gas kind of contracts versus the renewables kind of contract, renewables in general, it might be wind, it might be solar, it might be some other thing, okay, uh, it's definitely increasing in the favor of uh, uh, the renewables, the green energy side of things. Uh, but, but one thing we need to take note is that, you know, in fact, a lot of the uh, projects that we classify as green energy Will, I mean, are eventually tied back to a traditional oil and gas uh, project. So one example, right, would be hydrogen project. Uh -huh. So yeah, a lot of the hydrogen project will still be tied back. Will, will, will still be using LNG as as, as a feedstock. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's the current uh, case today. I mean, things may change in 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 the future, but in terms of the uh, uh, way that the contractors will look at different kind of project, I would say that they won't reject any kind of project. Because be it renewables, be it traditional oil and gas, from the EPC perspective, they are using the same resources. The knowledge base is the same. So why reject a right. revenue stream? So yeah, in that's 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 my take for the uh, longer term. Not sure, you know, how how insightful that is as a guess. Well, no rockets. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a safe guess. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for for the, your your time t tonight or the, the, this morning in, in Singapore. This has been interesting for me, and I look forward to to, to watching the, the space evolve. I think one of the interesting thing, things you mentioned is the 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 less complex wind projects, which is I mean, this is a a long distance parallel, but building a battery electric vehicle is less complex than building um, an internal combustion engine. And then you're saying that building wind is less complex than building offshore oil and gas. So, so that there's implicitly perhaps a less complex world as we move into this renewable uh, or low carbon environment. I'm sure that it's much more complex in reality than I've just described it. Um, but but it's kind of interesting to see the parallels between uh, the, the engineering of a battery vehicle and the engineering of an offshore wind farm. Okay, so uh, just to clarify something, I'm not sure about the complexity between the EV and the ICE vehicle. <laughs> okay, uh, that is probably a question for, for, for the expert. But, you know, when it comes to the EPC of the facilities mm -hmm. required for uh, oil and gas versus offshore wind, okay, for the offshore wind facilities, so let's say your HVDC substation and stuff, they are definitely much less complex as compared to a oil and gas central processing platform. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I'm sorry, well, wise no, I'm not too sure. <laughs> oh, that's true on the on the, on the battery, on, on the car stuff. And we've done a, a couple other podcasts with, with oh. folks from the automotive and, and battery team. And it's um, it the the complexities of building a battery electric vehicle are, are that much less than, and, and so there's less jobs, right. uh, less human labor needed. 
to set up a, a battery electrical vehicle facility, then uh, one, one would need to build uh, internal combustion engine. Right. So, See, uh, I learned something new. <laughs> well, well, there you go. Well, well I will hit uh, I'll hit end here, and I, okay. I look forward to, to repeating the conversation uh, or coming back to, to another conversation sometime soon. Sure. Nice talking to you, too. Thanks, Jing. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.